The funny thing about cavemen is that they're still walking the earth, and they're a lot smarter than we give them credit for. This is my conversation with Mark Merriweather Vorderbruggen. What if the truth came in a gel cap and we could just pop it in our mouths and forget about it? Well, it doesn't, and we can't. But we can laugh in the face of reality while plotting our survival. Welcome to the Truth Tastes Funny Podcast. I am your host, Hirsch Repland. And if my guests can handle the truth, so can you. Open wide, folks. Here it comes. I'm here with Mark Merriweather Vorderbruggen, PhD chemist and herbalist, and he's been kind enough to come on our show today, and uh, we're going to talk about humans. We're going to talk about, uh, about the world we live in and, and, and how we can human better, maybe. Um, thanks so much for coming. Mark, welcome to the show. Merriweather. Oh, thank you. Thank you for you. having me. And I love the fact that you say how we can human better, because that's what I'm all about. Right on. Well, tell me your story. Let's go back as early as you can possibly remember ah. and, and tell your story from the very, very beginning. Okay. Uh, I was born in central Minnesota in a small farming community up there. My earliest memories are actually out collecting dandelion greens and other wild plants with my mom, my dad, my aunts, uncles, grandparents, things like that. Uh, my parents were children of the Great Depression. They're both in their late 80s now. And one of the ways the small farming communities got through that terrible time was through their knowledge of wild edible plants. And so we'd be out there to, to put things in a little more perspective while we were out there every day. So my older brother is just barely 10 months older than me. And my younger brother is 13 months younger than me. So your parents weren't just picking berries. No, 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 no. Field. So they had three boys, all, yeah. you know, basically it's Irish triplets is what we call it. Okay. Got it. Yeah. So uh, they found if they took us out in the woods every day, we would get worn out and they could have some peace. Okay. And so it was a way of expending our energy. Ex yeah. Expending our energy. But at the same time, through the osmosis of what they were telling us while we were out there, we just learned all these wild edible and medicinal plants that you know, people used for not just generations, but for tens of thousands of years. Right. When you're born, if you're born a scientist, you know you were born a scientist. So I knew from as early as I can remember, I was a scientist. And my plan was to be an astronaut. And so I was born in 68, I'm 54 years old, but at the time, the tallest an astronaut could be in NASA was 6'3". They couldn't make the, the spacesuits bigger than that. And I hit 6'5 before I entered uh, high school. So it's like, damn, that's, that's not what I'm going to do. Yeah. So the next thing I thought, well, I, I love plants. I love what they can do for us. How about botany? I looked into botany. You don't make any money as a botanist. So I decided chemistry. Uh -huh. And in particular, what I wanted to focus on was natural products and their medicinal properties. So I, my career path through college was to become a pharmaceutical scientist. So I got a master's in what they called professional chemistry from South Dakota State University. Then I got a master's in medicinal chemistry and a PhD in physical organic chemistry from Rensselaer Polytechnic in upstate New York, a small science-based school actually one of the oldest schools in the nation. 
uh, but they focus purely on science and mathematics. We'll, we'll throw mathematics in there, too. <laughs> well, the closest I've come to any of those degrees was reading your bio. <laughs> That was it's, it. It's, it's chemistry. That's the extent of my of my scientific training. Just so you, you're okay. aware of what you're dealing not with. Not a problem. Not a problem. So the plan was to well, I focused on natural products and and you know the the natural chemistry because what a lot of pharmaceutical chemists do is they look at the natural products and then figure out how they can tweak it to make better. So I laid the groundwork for that as a career path. But then I graduated, uh, ended up in Houston, Texas. And the oil industry said, said, hey, you know what? It's in the early 90s, and, or actually mid-90s. And they were on a kick to, to green everything, to make everything environmentally friendly. And said, you have skills no one else here has. So here's a ton of money to try and come up with green chemistry for the, the oil field. And it's like, wow, money? I've never had money before. You have my attention, sir. <laughs> and for the next 18 years, that's what I did. My first patent was on using cinnamon as corrosion inhibitor for equipment. Okay. Uh, compared to the much more toxic compounds that they had been using at the time. Uh, my last few were actually... So, without going into great detail, there's good sand and there's bad sand. And bad sand can't be used for a lot of things because it crushes and breaks and does all sorts of stuff. Yeah. So I came up with a way of self-assembling fake oyster shells on the surface of bad sand to turn it into good sand. So instead of shipping sand from you know, very select sand deposits for use in construction and all these other things, because you need a good foundation if you're going to build a building, uh, we could take bad sand and turn it into good sand, which is pretty cool. Now, I, I got to admit, as a chemist... The way to think of that is you are a cow. I produce the milk. The farmer takes the milk and sells the milk. I get a nice stall with some good hay in it. The farmer gets the nice house and the big truck and all that sort of stuff. So I don't make anything from the patents. Okay. The, uh, that was my job was basically to produce patents for whoever I was working for. You know, the, the milk. That was, right. what I, you know, so they, 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 every time. So the tradition is when you come up with a patent, the company gives you a silver dollar as payment for that, that right which i was smart enough to hold on to all those silver dollars if you price silver dollars lately that, <laughs> that's that's my yeah, end of the world not, stash there <laughs> but that, that's yeah exactly but that's not how how uh how the private sector is supposed to really work in that you you get a silver dollar for every patent you no that's you pretty much common somebody makes money yeah, on it but remember they're somebody, paying for the labs the chemicals yeah, that's that was right. my job now, at the same yeah. time, I had a secret life. And so when I first moved to Texas back in 97, 96, uh, back in the early days of the Internet, I was going, all right, Texas, I can finally go outside all year round. There's not eight feet of snow on the ground. And I started going online looking for places to go outdoor adventuring because I love the outdoors. And there really wasn't a good clearinghouse of fun things to do outside in Texas. So I made one. I uh, created a blog and start every weekend I'd go off on some adventure and then I'd write, you know, all the details where I was, everything going on about. This is the foraging. Before the foraging, foraging Texas, Texas, actually. Oh, okay. That's what led to it. So one of the things that really okay. got people's attention was I mentioned, oh, and I saw these plants here. You can use this for that, da, 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 you know, just, just in the course of that, you know, recording my adventures, mentioning some different edible and medicinal plants and mushrooms I was finding. It got to the point where people started contacting me and said, hey, we're going camping next weekend. You, you want to come with? 
and it's like, well, will there be beer there? And, yeah, yeah, there'll be beer. All right, I'm in. Let's go. <laughs> Drove my <laughs> wife nuts because you don't know these people. It's like they're going camping. That makes them good people. The woods is a very target poor environment. Not if you've seen movies like Halloween and, you know, if you've seen any, if you've seen any, any horror movies, camping doesn't make people good people. Uh, it's not the campers that are in trouble. It's the people around there. But again, six, right, five, that's true. Mohawk. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> people, people treat me with respect. Uh, so anyway, yeah. in 2008, I was contacted by an organization, the Houston Arboretum. It's a big nature park in the center of Houston. Okay. And they say, hey, we hear you teach people wild edible, you know, plants. Will you do a class for us? And I said, well, will I get beer? And they said, no, we, we can't give you beer, but we can give you money. <laughs> and I said, ooh, money Listen, can be. <laughs> I want you to know I get beer and I get a silver dollar. If you don't have those there, things, I'm sorry. That's, we're not going to do business together. <laughs> I will say, just going sideways for a second, uh, this knowledge has been very popular in the prepper community. And uh, so one of the things there is they often can pay in silver. But anyway, 2008, okay. fall of 2008, I do a foraging class for the Houston Arboretum. Spring of 2009, I do two classes. Then it became a monthly class up until COVID hit in uh, you know, 2020. So for you know, over a decade, I was doing there. From there, it expanded all over Texas. You know, classes for museums and nature centers and nature preserves and state parks and historic sites and all this sort of thing. And it just kind of exploded. Uh, from there, I was contacted. Actually, a number of different foraging instructors around the world, or sorry, around the nation, were contacted by uh, DK Publishing and said, hey, we want to make Idiot's Guide Foraging. And would you be interested in writing it? And several of us said, yeah. A lot of them said, no way in hell. Um, the smart ones said, no way in hell. So I, I, I passed the test. They picked me to be the writer. They gave me uh, three months to write the book with 70 plants, detailed information, pictures, all this sort of thing, and 30 recipes uh, in three months. So I locked myself in a room, wrote every night after my day job. On the weekends, I was out taking pictures of plants, doing all this sort of thing. One of the nice things about Texas, though, the publisher wanted the book to cover all of North America. But... They weren't paying for travel, and in the three months' time, there wasn't time to travel. But luckily, Texas has 14 different ecological zones. We have, is, well, we basically, we have everything the rest of the country has. So it was very easy to pick plants, uh, photograph plants, include plants that are found in Texas as well as everywhere else. So they wasn't just Texas-specific. Right. All right, so that came out. Uh, Foraging Texas, the website had been created, and my life is just a constant whirlwind of, of classes and everything. 2016 happens, the oil, price of oil plummets, everyone was laid off. The multi-billion dollar company that I work for no longer exists. You know, we're talking like a $500 billion a year company, gone. So, yeah, that's, that's what it is. But then I moved into the consumer market, but from there, I dabbled in different things. But finally, in the January 2020, Medicine Man Plant Co., where I finally got to bring the ancient plants for modern health issues. But more than that, I build myself now like a professional caveman or a, a preacher of cavemanosity. My goal right. is to help people incorporate caveman activities into their life because a lot of our modern 
health issues, diabetes, attention deficit disorder, high blood pressure, anxiety, depression, are really due to the fact that our body no longer is in the world it evolved to survive in. We've done all sorts of things to the world that have made it more comfortable and convenient, but in doing so, we lost some very important activities and actions and input into our body. And that has led to a lot of health issues. So that's what I really want to talk about. <laughs> me too, because this makes a lot of sense to me, especially now that I'm talking, you know, I, I'm talking to more and more people about ways we can do better in, in the world we're in today. This is the first conversation I'm, I'm having about how the environments we've created around ourselves essentially have taken us in maybe the wrong direction. But I also recently discussed with, a, with a, uh, an author uh, how the outdoors is really uh, curative and preventative in terms of preventive health. And a lot of the same issues that you're talking about, a lot of the same problems that we have are because we're not getting out enough. And it makes perfect sense to me because I feel like, you know, I grew up, I grew up in Miami Beach. So I was, I was raised, born and raised near the ocean. I lived for a long time in California. Now I'm living in central United States and I feel like something is off. Something is off, and it's not snobbery. Like at first, you think, "Oh, well, you're just you're used to being on the coasts and New York and and L.A. and Miami," but it's really the ocean. What I've realized that I mm-hmm. that I am I am confused, and I'm functional, but I'm confused and dis discombobulated, yeah. disoriented away from the ocean. It affects my my ability to really just think in a very natural and relaxed way but go ahead and 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 continue on this on this journey all right i'm going to give you some choices here because there's lots of things we can talk about we can talk about how going outside strengthens the immune system we can talk about how walking on uneven ground has all sorts of health benefits. We can talk about how throwing things at stuff has all sorts of health benefits. Oh, good. We can talk about how borrowing a cup of flour from your neighbor has all sorts of health benefits. Because it all boils back to our caveman, tribal, ancestral evolutionary roots. Let's start there, Meriwether. Let's start with, uh, because I want something really tangible and practical uh, to begin with, you know, in terms of what we can do. Borrowing flour from a neighbor. Let's go a little deeper on okay. that. Okay. There's a thing in your brain that says if you do a favor for someone, that person is a friend. Even if you don't know them or even if they're an enemy. If an enemy comes to me, hey, can I borrow your pencil before a test? Yeah, okay, here. It causes a, a, a switch in your brain. We put that person in the friend category. Yeah. We are a tribal people. We are evolved to have a group around us, a close-knit group. Uh, basically, 150 people is what they found. The brain can keep 150 people, the information of 150 people in our brain at a time. Once you get beyond 150 people, you start to have stranger danger feelings. Right. But 150 people. But right now, how many people really know 150 other people? You know, you tangentially at work and so forth. But one of the key things is your neighbors. We are, we have, I like to call them geographic friends. The people around us every day 
we should be interacting with them. That's how we evolved. There's all sorts of health benefits, especially for the brain. They've shown by interacting with people on a repeated basis. Uh, strengthens the immune system, increases the dopamine and serotonin in your brain, and all this sort of thing. So how does borrowing flour, like I said, if you don't know your neighbors, someday you go, I really need to know the neighbors. Go over, knock on the door, say, hey, I just, just to, no, I don't mean to bother you, but I, I, I started cooking. I need a cup of flour. Can you help me out? Do you have a cup of flour I can borrow? You know, and usually they go, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, sure. I got flour or sugar or, or coffee, you know, something. Yeah. And from that, now they go, oh, I helped this person. I knew this person. And by the way, I'm Mark. Blah, 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 you know, I'm going to eat the plants in your yard. Don't worry about it. You know, but you use that as the stepping stone. And then like a, a few days later, you swing by with some homemade cookies or some beers. Hey, just, I just want to let you know how much I appreciated you helping me out there. And if you ever need anything, let me know. Yeah. And you just start doing that. And you start building the connections. Like, let's say you have a, 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 an older neighbor. You see them out mowing the lawn. You say, hey, dude, you know, let me do this for you. Just as a, just as a nice thing. Here's a, here's a beer. Sit in the shade. Let me finish mowing the lawn for you. Yeah, just because we need, you know, we're all on this planet together. And you, but you use that, that, that giving and, and requesting to rewire the brain to say, this person is part of my tribe. And it does great things. Yeah. Here in Houston, we have a problem with hurricanes and flooding. And so one of the things they found that the neighborhoods where the neighbors know each other get through those events much easier with less stress and trauma than the neighborhoods where it's all brand new and no one knows each other. And yeah, it's just it's a nightmare. Well, we've, we live in a world where going back to the 150 people, now we're striving to have thousands of followers (laughs) or thousands of contacts and we we, but do we really trust any of them and do any of them trust us or do we really know any of them do any of them know us celebrities are trying to get you know capitalize in many ways on their notoriety by opening you know by only fans and cameo and all these apps that'll that allow them to give their audience access that they don't really have, but it's it's all fictional. So borrowing a cup of sugar is real, yeah. And there's no risk. Saying to the elderly neighbor, "Let me let me finish mowing your lawn for you," is is a low risk interaction because it establishes trust. Mm-hmm. We never get to. There's a there was a, a joke my father used to tell about this. There's, it's starting, it looks like it's going to rain. And, um, and this guy, uh, and this guy goes to his, his neighbor's house because he knows, uh, his friend has an an extra umbrella and he doesn't have an umbrella. And he's like, you know, I'll go over to Dave's house. I'm going to borrow his umbrella. And as he's walking over there, he goes, you know what though? I don't know if, I don't know about Dave. I don't know if Dave's going to be so willing to lend me his umbrella. I remember my kid borrowed a a baseball glove from him once and he wanted the baseball glove back for his son and it was I don't I don't know I don't know about asking for this umbrella that's starting to thunder and uh you know and intuitively Dave's already thought you know maybe Jimmy's coming over to get an umbrella I know he doesn't have an umbrella and he gets his umbrella ready but by the time by the time Jimmy gets over to Dave's house he's so worked up about you know, I don't know if if if, if Dave's going to give me his umbrella. He's he worried about that baseball glove, and the and it's about to pour, and the, he brings the doorbell anyway, 
And Dave opens the door and he goes, Jimmy, how are you doing? And Dave says, and, and, uh, and Jimmy says, shove your umbrella up your ass. <laughs> so it's, it's a long way to say, you know, we get ourselves in such a, in such a froth uh, that, we, that we, we don't accept the generosity of others, you know, that we're, we're not, we're so wrapped up in what we think is a bigger picture. Mm-hmm. That we forget this small picture of the humanity. And I tell people, if if your neighbor came to you asking for a cup of sugar or flour, would you treat them rudely? Would you get out right. of it? No, you would be nice to them. Right. That's how they're going to treat you. You know, unless it's a really jerk of a neighbor. But even then, you got a shot. You know, try it. Where do you think uh, hatred and fear really come from? Ah, hatred comes from fear. That... So one of the things we did evolve is, you know, the whole concept of stranger danger. There's some really interesting studies that show that the foods we ate and still eat impart a certain odor on the tribe. And so if someone did not have that odor, they were not part of your tribe. And so they were viewed with suspicion because they were after the same resources that you were after. And you were trying to protect mm-hmm. your 150 people, and they're trying to protect their 150 people, and clashes began. So, what about what about elitism? Hmm, I've never really considered that. And from an evolutionary point of view, that really didn't come into play until we figured out agriculture and had a way of storing calories. At that point, once you could store calories. Some people just kind of naturally gravitated to the role of being in charge of the storage. And that led to the whole, you know, layers of society. If you look at a lot of the uh, still hunter-gatherer groups that are around nowadays, they're still a lot more even-keeled. It, maybe it's an extension of, uh, of survival, you know. Going back to that hatred and fear thing, they're, they're afraid that if they don't hoard for themselves, other people yeah. are going to... Like, I'm just trying to look at the the corporate and 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 uh and uh overwhelming infrastructure that we have that you alluded to you know this this structure that we're not getting out of that we're not getting free of is ultimately not designed for our survival anyway it's really designed for the survival of a very small group of of people so well one could argue it is survival of the fittest which yeah. <laughs> is pretty much the history of every creature on the planet. Um, yeah. The, uh, going back, let's talk about hoarding here for a second. Yeah, and yeah. you mentioned the, the hoarding the food so others can't get it. Right. Obesity and our craving of sugar and calories and carbohydrates, most of our evolutionary period, and we're still evolving, but most of that, we were on the edge of starvation. Right. So those that evolved sensory you know, nerves in their gut that said, ooh, this food you're eating is high in calories. Eat as much of it as you can because you don't know when you're going to get this again. So just gorge yourself on it. Right. And that was a very critical part of survival way back then. Nowadays, we have a pantry full of Doritos and Girl Scout cookies and all that sort of thing. So we eat a, a cookie and go, our brain is saying, oh, 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 eat all of them. You, yeah, you got to eat all these because you don't know when you're going to get it again. And, you know, the brain doesn't understand there's a whole cabinet of them just waiting there calling my name. 
So and we have yeah. and we have a a society that's you know committed on one level to educating uh, to or should be really committed to depending on where where in the culture you are you find yourself committed to educating its youth mm-hmm. right educating people and teaching things like sharing and and tolerance and and other things and yet here we are in 2022 struggling so so yeah. you know ferociously with even the most basic civil yeah. uh communication and respect a lot of it is hardwired in we are we are fighting our fundamental programming and what's nice about us is yeah. we can do that well in in the professional caveman uh ethos what what are some what are some things we can do that not only improve our our physical well-being but our emotional health and our worldview simplest thing get outside just walk around especially in nature it's 104 out here in Houston right now but i spend as much time as possible out in the you know i got my standing desk out here i got an ethernet cable going into the house but there's different things i mentioned earlier how uh, the immune system strengthens. So from mm-hmm. life is about energy and how best to use the limited amount of energy a body has. You might have been inferred from economics and opportunity cost. If you buy one thing, you no longer have the resources to do something else. So this played a role in evolution. One thing they've shown that when we are in our home, whether it be a house, a cave, a teepee, whatever, our immune system kind of ratchets down some. And then when we go outside, it kicks in and goes on kind of a high alert. Right. This is an energy thing. So because when you're outside your home, out in nature, in your caveman body, that's when you're in a, a riskier environment. You're more likely to be injured, get some, you know, drink some bad water, get called beaver fever, something like that, pick up a disease from someone. And so by only having the immune system on high alert when you're outside actually then allowed energy to be used elsewhere for all sorts of other things. So when they closed everything down and said everyone had to stay inside when the whole COVID thing started, it's like, are you nuts? That's, that's, that's you know, completely ignoring the vitamin D issues. Just staying inside or staying outside or getting outside strengthens our immune system. That's how we evolved. Right. <laughs> the, to me, the, the idea that um, you know, when it happened, it was still winter, and here I was in the in the Midwest. <laughs> I, you know, we were while we were a little bit safer at first. It just hadn't gotten to us yet, and people hadn't, you know, had just like shut down. And you know, where I was living, it was, you know, we were just completely quarantined. But I could go outside of my house, and I was just waiting for the weather to get better so that. Something was telling me, you know, just at least you need to be outside. You don't have to be outside 50, you know, deep in a, in a, in a, in a space right. with people, but you have to be outside. Mm-hmm. You have to start to walk around and get into nature somehow. What was your reaction, though, um, scientifically when you, when you heard about COVID, when, when the pandemic struck? So from the scientific point of view, it was no surprise whatsoever. Okay. I mean, there's been a history of pandemics. 
and you know especially with international travel and you know crowding of slums and everything there are some really nasty petri dishes in the world and anything that really becomes virulent there is not going to stay there so the initial thought was "Eh, it's about time you know i i remember reading and learning about the spanish flu after world war one you know, the Black Plague, that was the one time when the population actually noticeably dipped on the planet, uh, things like that. So it wasn't much of a surprise. But at the same time, the response to it once, you know, once we started getting information on it and who was, who was in danger compared to how, you know, everything was reacting to it, it seemed like there's, this doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the four comorbidities, if you were overweight, high blood pressure, diabetic, yeah. uh, or very old, then you are at risk. Everyone else, I mean, we've seen, it, it's not a, I'm not going to say it's not an issue. There are some people, but in statistical right, point were, of view, yeah. if you're young, healthy, all that, it was sniffles. I mean, Fossey, he's what, 78? He came down with COVID just the last week. You haven't heard about him dying or anything like that. So, right. You know, it's, it's like, yeah, overreaction. An, over, an overreaction. And possibly where my mind just went, I don't know why it did, but where my mind just went was, you know, we're, we freak out because we have so little control. We freak out because we're not in control of our own lives. We require so much technology and so much uh, formality in our infrastructure. We require so much infrastructure that we do panic because nature has become a threat to the average city dweller, mm-hmm. right? We, yeah, you're, you're dead on there, no pun intended. Uh, <laughs> I mean, when you have a complex system like our modern life, it's very fragile. And for the most of people's lives, they're thinking this wonderful system of groceries showing up at the grocery store so I don't have to go out and kill a pig in the wild and all this stuff. It will always be here. And suddenly they are faced with the realization this has been, you know, the last 80 years or so on the planet has been so different than all the previous history of, you know, chaos and uncertainty. But like you said, we, we be came accustomed to and almost, well, we did. We expected that sort of lifestyle to go on uninterrupted. And so when that foundation was shook, it's just terror. Mm-hmm. The, a lot of my places, or a lot of the places that hosted me to teach during that time shut down. And I was getting hate mail from people. It's like, how can you not teach right now? It's the end of the world. We need to know this stuff because everything's... And it's like, A... I didn't shut me down. The organization that hosts me that supplies the insurance so I can do these classes, you know, shut it down. So talk to them and be, you should have been studying this beforehand, you know, because now it's too late. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So there's that. Yeah. And then, of course, what you said about the fear of nature, we're, from what I've seen, we're basically on the third generation now where every snake is poisonous, every, you know, plant is poison ivy. Not only do they not know nature, they are terrified of it. Yeah. While at the same time, they want to go out and play in it. If you let kids, young kids, go out and play in it, they're picking up sticks, they're picking up snakes, you know, they're doing all that. And the parents are going, oh, don't do that. That's dangerous. That's poisonous. You know, or the parents don't have time to take the kids out into the nature. Or the city they're living in doesn't have any safe green spaces. 
So there's a, there's a huge disconnect from nature, which leads to a misunderstanding, really, of how nature works and an overestimate of the threats it poses. So it all came crashing together. Let's talk about the environment for a second and the threats we pose. What's your take? What's your take both on what man's actual capability is for destruction of the of the planet, you know, through climate change and and just being bad custodians essentially of the earth? And what should we be doing? Okay, I'm going to I'm going to be a little pandemic here. Pen, well, when you say destruction of the earth, what do you mean? Are you talking, <laughs> I'm not talking about flaming cinder, you know, airless, or are we talking no. no longer ideal for what we believe is the ideal situation for humans? Yes, I'm. I'm really talking about livability and 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 uh, and and the uh, the quality of life that that uh, that we feel we we want to have on this planet rather than you know armageddon or global destruction or nuclear destruction because i think we know what that yeah <laughs> we know what those capabilities are we know what those results yeah. are i'm talking more about uh about um you know some people will say well the responsibility of humans is x it the effect we can have is this the impact we can have is this and the preventative or reversal course we can take is this and so your 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 sense okay. your 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 point of view i'm going to go a little socratic here okay so i'm going to ask you to imagine something okay and i want you to tell me how you picture this the time of the dinosaurs what in your mind when you picture that was the world like back then yeah my my suspicion is that the lines at the dmv were much shorter <laughs> probably um, yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, like plants I think I just, yeah, I just think of it as, 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 as very natural and, uh, holistic and, um, and somewhat brutal from, from, from a human's point of view. Why? But. Uh, ignoring the dinosaurs for a second, but just the, the environment yeah. itself. Right. Um. Well, I think I was thinking about the dinosaurs. I was thinking about, uh, you know, the, the survival of the fittest okay. uh, concept. But I think I, I think I imagine it as, if there's one word that I could use, I would say natural in the most basic sense. Okay. Because the structure, the, 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 the activity was all very natural and organic in that there was nobody who'd figured out yet how to corrupt the earth with anything anything more complicated okay. i guess or had had not yet been able to complicate the earth okay so let's go with climate change and carbon dioxide that's when you hear you know they're, they're like carbon dioxide causes climate sure. change uh the parts per million how much carbon dioxide, molecules of carbon uh, dioxide is in the atmosphere versus all the other molecules floating around. Right now, it just recently crossed over 400 parts per million. What do you think it was back in the dinosaur times? <laughs> do, do, uh, do, zero? Do. <laughs> zero parts per... 1,700 parts per million. 
So, right. you know, more than 10 times bigger. Yeah. So huge right. amount. It was a green paradise. One of the things they've found, they're looking at the satellite changes in the earth over time. And the plants themselves are actually loving what's going on. Places that hadn't been green for thousands of years are starting to green up again because plants love the carbon dioxide. They're taking that carbon dioxide and they're going, uh, ah, I'm yeah. not revealing any secrets here, but one of the very common things with the people that grow marijuana plants like in greenhouses and stuff is they have tanks of carbon dioxide that they just flood the, the, the greenhouse with to up the amount of carbon dioxide because they get much more lush plants that way. Right. So... The correlation, going back to the 17, uh, yeah, 1,700 parts per, per million of carbon dioxide, that was volcanoes, uh, mainly volcanoes. We still got volcanoes. The point I'm going toward, well, let's, 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 it sounds like I'm going sideways here for a second. The people telling you about global warming, especially the big names, do things like build multiple mansions along the coast, which they're saying in 10 years will be flooded. Yet they're spending tens of millions of dollars on these big mansions. You would think if they earned that much money, they would be smart enough to go, hmm, Iowa. I should live in Iowa. But right. they're not. So what do they, are they foolish? Are they have that much money that they can just burn it? Most of them are big into charities and so forth. You know, Bill Gates runs to mind. So, I mean, I, there's a disconnect there. Yeah. So, and like right now, you know, there, I, I recently saw a thing that talked about the amount of materials needed to be mined for the different types of power, you know, like coal, oil, nuclear power, solar, hydro, or hydro, hydroelectric, uh, wind, and the, especially when it comes to solar, it's a huge amount of materials that are required. And so there, there's, and like a, a number of states, Germany, you might've seen in the news, Germany, they're in the process of firing up a bunch of coal burning power plants because they shut down their nuclear power plants because nuclear is bad. They were getting the gas from Russia and then Russia said, hoo hoo, we have you. <laughs> right. And so they were left with just going back to coal. So... Well, where this where this takes me, Meriwether is uh, is the thought about you know nuclear because we know nuclear power may not be bad in and of itself. Nuclear war bad, is bad. Yeah. Nuclear nuclear warheads are bad. So one of the questions that I had had been thinking in approaching our interview was, why do human beings fuck everything up? <laughs> like why do we? Why, what, what is it about, what is it about us that, because yes, we can look at it from the point of view of here's this, this, you know, we need to get outside more. We need to get more in touch with nature. We need to start maybe shifting our view of what we expect mm -hmm. and imagine the earth should be or, 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 or ideally is in order to suit us. But why do we screw it up all the time? Why do we, why do we tend toward self what feels like self-destruction because there's what's the saying no raindrop feels responsible for the flood every human is trying to just take care of themselves give the best life they can you know for their children and things like that 
There's an evolutionary drive. It's not just humans. If you think a bottle of beer, what is beer? It is live yeast that ate the sugars from malted you know, grains and excreted alcohol to the point where they poisoned their environment to the point where the yeast could no longer live. So we, we are, every time we're cracking a beer or a bottle of wine, we are drinking a failed civilization that destroyed its own ecosystem. Right. If you give rats a bunch of food, they breed uncontrollably, devour all the food, and then they crash. Same with deer. Uh, there's a wonderful book, the Sand, uh, Sand Hill Chronicles by Leopold. He was the founder of the Sierra Club. And he has a big chapter on there that when they killed the grizzlies out in the west, in the Rockies, when they killed up the grizzlies and the wolves, suddenly the deer population exploded and they stripped the mountains of plants. So it's, it's just this innate thing. When there are resources available, we go, ah, there are resources available. I am good. I am happy. Let's have some kids. Let's, let's, let's keep doing what we're doing because apparently it's working until it's not. So it's not just humans, it's anyone that is given, any creature that's given the resources it needs to survive, it will exploit them to the tragic end. There's never been anything that has a self-limiting level on it. Right, so that's not encouraging. Nope. But it's, but it's, but it's the reality. That's why space travel and Mars and you know, all that stuff. We, we want to diversify where we're living to give us a better shot, in my opinion. Yeah, so. so that we can hop on the next, hop on the next wave. <laughs> yep, and use those resources up. But this is going away. Let's hop on yeah. a. But asteroid mining, the amount of resources, the lithium, and the and all the minerals you need for the batteries that we need for the electric cars that they want to replace the gas cars with. I mean, the amount of of that is going to be its own ecological disaster. So if we can get it from off the earth. That helps kind of protect the earth. Yeah. Copper, power lines. <laughs> so as a, as a professional caveman, what are your priorities right now? Ah. It's hard to see here. Um, supplying as much of the food for my family as I can from my little plot of land. And basically teaching others to do that, how to interact with nature in a sustainable manner. One of the big things I teach is foraging ethics. And, and I tell people, if I feel like the Texas ecosystems are being decimated by foragers, I'm shutting everything down. They've already seen this happen in places like California and New York, where foraging became big. A lot of fancy restaurants like to offer, you know, only here, only now dishes with foraged goods. And you can you know, show up at the back door of these restaurants with a, with a grocery bag of Greenbrier and say 50 bucks and they give you 50 bucks, no questions asked. So there's a big problem with wild plant rustling going on. So trying to do it in a sustainable manner, but trying to reattach people to nature, going back to the health benefits. We didn't even talk about why it works great to walk on uneven ground and the whole serotonin and dopamine you get from being out in nature. So by getting them reconnected to nature and understanding the true value of nature, not just lip service, 
I mean, kids these days are being, you got to love nature as they sit on their couch and play video games and are not actually allowed in nature. If they're not allowed in nature, they don't, yeah. if it's something that's supposed to be scary and poisonous, screw that, you know? So by reattaching, yeah. Yeah, so the self-sufficiency in nature is, is another level. You know, you could say, oh, go look at something beautiful. Go outside and look at something beautiful as though it's a painting. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's one step, but... The foraging aspect, the actual d digging in there and doing something outside, that's connecting. Yep. That's the difference between observing nature and connecting. Yeah, learning there's food here, there's medicine here. Once they start understanding, it's not just a pretty picture, like you said. Yeah. It is a, a, a medicine cabinet and a pantry. Wow, really? Yeah. And, and I always, in everything I do, I bring up the scientific research that shows, yeah, these plants have proven to have this power. The new thinking outside the box is really getting outside the walls, you know, getting out, getting beyond the walls, mm -hmm. to use a Game of Thrones analogy, <laughs> go, be, go beyond the wall and... Uh, yep, visualize the end. And that's right. Mark Merriweather, Vorderbruggen, uh, it's been wonderful speaking with you. There's a lot more to talk about. You're right. And, um, cool. and I hope we have a chance to talk again. Anytime. Thanks so much for tuning into Truth Tastes Funny. If you enjoyed the experience, please leave a five-star review and share this podcast with your friends.